Hello all. All right, you guys, uh, you're going to notice that the beginning of this episode kind of just starts abruptly. And the reason for that is that I forgot to press record. I mean, come on, I'm just human after all. <laughs> no, uh, we had started talking at the beginning of it, and then we kind of got into conversation, and I realized, hey, I haven't pressed record. So um, anyway, we revisited everything that we talked about, and I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Here we go with Jeff Kernow. <music> doing political cartoons and uh, I started putting them online and uh, NPR picked me up through Michael Sachs. Everybody knows Mike Sachs. He's a principal trumpet of the uh, Cleveland Orchestra. His wife, Yolanda Condonassis, is a fabulous heart player and she's a big fan of my cartoons and she knew this guy, Tom Heisinger from uh, NPR. And she said, you guys got to get together and, you know, because she's seen my post on Facebook. And so uh, I, Tom and I ended up uh, corresponding, and he said, oh, okay, well, how about two a month? And I said, well, uh, I could do one every week, <laughs> which I didn't, I didn't know whether I could do that or not, but I thought, what the heck? And uh, since then, it was about five years ago, I've been doing a cartoon every Friday for the NPR Classical Facebook page. Hmm. And based on classical music, and it's, it's been great. It's been fun. A little stressful at times, but uh, fun. I love cartooning, and I've always been a fan. Well, the cartooning, I mean, it's one of those things that, like, I'm sure a lot of people see, and they're like, wow, I bet I could do something like that. And then they sit down and try to do it once, and they're like, <laughs> I have no ideas. I can't draw. And even if I did have an idea, I don't know how to portray it in, like, two stills or like three or whatever it is it's got to be really difficult <laughs> i mean it, it like- is it's it's it it's a learning process in that i've got to take a one panel like you said a one panel cartoon call a gag cartoon mm-hmm. and i've got to find a subject matter and then i've got to present it in a funny way and but there's a lot of intricate little things like everybody reads from left to right and so you have to kind of set the cartoon up that way. And then you have to have uh, the font big enough so people can see it on their cell phones, which cuts the artwork down a little bit. And then you're dealing with how you portray the people within the cartoon, uh, the expressions, and of course, the, you know, uh, the instruments and how you're going to draw those. You know, classical music cartoons are tricky because the first few I did, the classical crowd would say well that doesn't look like a viola well where are the you know that doesn't look like a trombone right so you have to kind of make it look like the instrument and, and kind of you know read the room and the public that you're doing the cartoon for well i'm sure that so, you also have to like put into consideration that probably a lot of your ideas would hit really hard with musicians, but maybe be over the head of a lot of the actual people who are going to check it out on NPR. Exactly. That's what my NPR editor, Tom, says. It's inside baseball. He said, this is too inside baseball. Mm -hmm. Uh, My, you know, the normal everyday classical music 
fan isn't going to get this. And so some of them, yeah, end up getting tossed or I just post them on my Facebook page. Uh, so yeah, that to consider also making sure that the reader isn't shut out by an inside joke uh, by us musicians. So it is tricky. The writing is, tr is the hardest part, sitting down and thinking of the damn cartoons. <laughs> it's right. like, sometimes you're tearing your hair out. It's um, pacing around and, you know, trying to figure out a good cartoon. Do you ever once in a while have a cartoon that you think is like really great at the time and then right before it's going to be published or something you like are second guessing uh, maybe that's oh. a little too far or maybe <laughs> all the time i just put one out <laughs> i sent one uh i t and i laughed it's the process is you th sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night you think of them other times you're i'm pacing around the house for hours at a time and i come up with a cartoon that i think is hilarious I wait a day, 24 hours, and it's not so funny anymore. Chuck it. <laughs> or it remains funny, and okay, we'll keep it. Let's try to mold it in to a cartoon. Ah, it doesn't work. Can't put it on the page. Chuck it. Okay, it works. This one works. Mold it into a cartoon. And this particular cartoon I just put out has a trombone player and a trumpet player. And the trumpet player says, I know we've had disagreements in the past, but I'm happy to play, be playing music with you again. I thought it would be a good pandemic cartoon. And a couple frames later, the trombone player just turns to him and says, shut up. <laughs> now, I, I just, I was laughing at that and laughing for two days. I thought this is a winner. This is going to, this is going to kill. Right. And I sent it. As soon as I sent it, I was like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> That's a little harsh. <laughs> And my editor said, no, no, it's great. Let's put it up there. So, I mean, I, I you know, you, you, you never know. It, humor is very subjective. And uh, sometimes I've been slammed for cartoons. And other times, you know, I, cartoons will take off. Like I did one recently that got 5,000 shares. Wow. And I was like, why? Who, you know, who would have figured that happened with that cartoon? So you never know. <laughs> Man, yeah, I totally saw that one, the one that you were talking about. And I was laughing pretty hard, too, because anybody who's sat in any situation for any length of time right. human being <laughs> has had that feeling, you know, and it's like we all have these feel good vibes. Like, oh, I go back to work and everything. Right. It's back, you know, back to the old grind. <laughs> yep. yep. It's kind of like w when you have a night where you had way too much to drink and the next <laughs> You're like, you know, I'm going to be good and I'm going to blah, blah, blah. So I feel good all the time. And then, yeah, you're back to it. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of drinks, all right, do you have anything special? That you're I, <laughs> I'm at the bottom of a, I started about 10 minutes before. <laughs> I'm, I'm a martini fanatic. So I, I'm a gin fan. So I, you know, check out all sorts of different gins and vermouths and trying to work out the perfect martini. And uh, recently, uh, the first time in about a year, I went out to dinner with a couple of guys from the, the gig, a couple of guys from Philly, mm -hmm. and I had a great martini. <laughs> so I'm thinking, man, what am I doing at home? It sucks. So I redid the whole thing and all this research, and I went out and I bought some gin, and I now all of a sudden the vermouth has to be in the refrigerator. Uh, I didn't know that, and so maybe my vermouth is bad. So I, I, and now I'm not shaking it anymore. I'm stirring it. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> like, that's the thing. Got to stir it. You know, you don't want to shake it. <laughs> so I, I wanted to make sure I had enough time before I got on with you. 
and I did my, you know, martini and I stirred it and didn't shake it and had the vermouth, certain a new vermouth. And it, it's better. It's, <laughs> it's, better. Not, it's not as good as the one I had at the restaurant. So I'm still researching. Also, what uh, gin do you use? Mm. I'm going to embarrass myself right now because I went bottom shelf. <laughs> and- I went I went to the Gordons. I usually, I, you know, I've had Bombay Sapphire mm-hmm. and uh, Ford's was just, just terrific. I love Ford's. That's great. I've had regular Bombay. Uh, uh, Gunpowder is very good. I like that. But I decided to go with the bottom shelf because someone said, look, this is the one James Bond drinks. He drinks Gordons. Is, you know, right. why don't you check it out? Plastic bottle. I don't know. But there, there's a glass bottle. I'll take the glass bottle. I'll feel better about myself. And it's good. I'm I'm a London dry gin fan. So, and I, you know, I think it's terrific. It's a great gin. It's very clean tasting. It's not too wacky. And uh, so I just decided to start there and build up and try to create a martini that I like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it's a very personal, it's a very personal drink. For sure. And, yeah. I'm going to work on that, but I'm I'm going to start from a like I said, the bottom shelf and work my way up <laughs> again. <laughs> I have a buddy named Tom Leslie, and he always is making martinis. He's trying to get me into them, but some about vermouth, I'm not. I don't know. I, but I do love gin, so I'm always making like uh, gin tonics or gin and soda, and I love Hendrix. That's like great gin. Yeah, for me, it's like a, a Hendrix and tonic with a cucumber and like a dash of pepper. Yep. I've had that drink. That is terrific. I like Hendrix. The cucumber thing throws off the olives for me. Mm. So if I if I have that, I'll have it with it with some lemon, you know, a, a, a twist. Uh, but I, and I'm an olive guy. So and I've really been Bulldog was another gin. I got a dry a London dry gin. that was very good. Um but uh, I was a big vodka guy for a long time. And then it just got crazy boring for me. And then I went to gins and I understood the whole gin thing with the different flavors and, you know. Yeah. Gin uh, just has that bouquet to it. Where it's right. Like, it's so much more refreshing than just like a vodka on ice or a vodka right. or something. Just right. kind of very plain. What are you drinking back there? I see something in the bouquet. What, what is that? Is uh, that a... Basil Hayden's. Oh, very nice. Uh, Kentucky bourbon. Very nice. Very nice. I hadn't had a Kentucky bourbon in a little while, so that's what I'm going with today. I got to tell you a story. I was at uh, Tom Rolfs a couple summers ago. He's got a beautiful place in the Berkshires. He's a principal trumpet of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Philly trumpet section went out there, and he's a bourbon fan. And it's the first time I had Pappy. Which is which? It's a very high end burp. It's like fifteen hundred dollars a bottle. Crazy, <laughs> like, man. Never buy it, but I'll drink Tom's. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's very good. Very good. Yeah, uh, that same guy that I was talking about that makes the the martinis. He's a huge Pappy fan, and he's been drinking it for a really long time. Uh, so it used to be a lot cheaper. Yeah. All of a sudden, it exploded, and he's got a bunch of bottles of it, and now. He, he used to let me drink it all the time. And now every time I go over there, he's like, I drink too much of it, man. <laughs> he's like, I'll give you a glass of the beer and then we'll move on to something else. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm going to tell you something. I, I started, I started recording this 
uh, when we started talking about the cartoons because I was excited to talk to you and I forgot to press record when I. (laughs) 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 I did get the cartoon stuff. It's awesome. But I'm going to reintroduce you. I'm going to introduce you. (laughs) (laughs) This is a first for me, man. All right. Welcome to Music on the Rocks with Chris Castellanos. Uh, This week, I've got Jeff Kerno with me. He is an amazing trumpet player, an awesome guy. He's associate principal trumpet with the Philadelphia Orchestra, a former principal trumpet of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, and uh, perhaps most well-known, at least for me, uh, as trumpet player with Empire Brass. Uh, He put out 15 albums with them, and uh, they're just one of my favorite groups of all time, favorite chamber ensembles of all time, uh, just an amazing sound and uh, breadth of repertoire. And also, I mean, all these videos that are coming out now, you have been finding a lot of them because it turned out that you were kind of the guy who was recording <laughs> everything. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I set up the uh, the VCR at the time uh, with my TV and anytime we were on Good Morning America or um, any any broadcast that we did, Rolf would tend to shelve these things, and I would say, hey, "Can I take that? I'll copy it and give it right back to you." Um, I'm glad I did, uh, you know, just because it was. It's good to have now. It's good to look back on, and I thought at the time this might be an interesting historical thing, mm-hmm. and, but you know, I put it away for a long time. I didn't even you know think about it for. Uh, you know, years and years. And then all of a sudden I, I decided to pull these things out and put them on YouTube. And I'm glad that I did that because that group was never really videotaped. Yeah. I'm really glad that you did too. YouTube is kind of like the library. It's a, you know, I mean, if you want to find anything out, if you want to like see any historical recordings uh, that's video or anything, and you want it now, that's the place to go. I mean, you type it into YouTube and for a long time you would type in empire brass onto YouTube and maybe you would catch this, the Mr. Rogers thing. And and there would be videos of stills with like the music underneath or whatever, but there was hardly any video. Uh, And then all of a sudden (laughs) surfaced all these recordings and it was you putting them out. So it's really, really cool just for, like you said, historical purposes, especially for brass players, because uh, our history doesn't go back quite as, (laughs) it's not as substantial as say strings or or full orchestra or anything like that. So it's really cool to see that kind of chamber music at that level being played live. And uh, yeah, it's crazy for me to think that I'm old enough to to remember when there were no cell phones. (laughs) And in some ways, I'm thankful of that, (laughs) that no one was able to capture, you know, uh, the the video that we didn't particularly want people to capture. But um, but at that time, it was very rare that we would be videotaped anywhere unless it was a planned event at a TV station uh, or when we did something in Venezuela, uh, we were recorded there. But it was all about audio recording. And th- but there's something you can get from video that you can't get from audio when you're watching the players actually do it and you're seeing how they're breathing, you're seeing uh, how they're standing. You're, you're, it's a an, an completely different element 
to learning about, you know, uh, how these groups came about, whether it's a string quartet, whether it's you know, Leonard Bernstein conducting uh, or, you know, uh, or any other brass group for that matter, just to watch them being able to do what they do is an education in itself, along with what you're hearing. Yeah. And now people want more and more <laughs> from everything. I mean, it's like, it used to be that people waited on bated breath for the next audio recording of something. You know, I remember, I remember going to Tower Records in high school and flipping oh, through the, yeah, yeah and you'd, you'd flip through the CDs of brass and just hope that somebody had a new recording that you hadn't seen the last time you were there, you know, and, and you'd be excited if you saw a new Empire album or, or Canadian or whoever it was, uh, German brass. And now it's a, a non-event, right? unfortunately. And then, and you do hear a great recording and you don't get as many people listening to it unless it's got some sort of video along with it. And now I see a trend where it's now, unless you're playing it with the video of you playing it and you've got the music underneath, now nobody's going <laughs> to, so now it's like people just want more and more from you, you know what I mean? So we'll see where that's going. Well, the Boston Brass, uh, last couple of videos I've seen of yours are terrific. They're just spectacular. The way they're uh, uh, they're produced, and I mean, it's real high-quality stuff. And that's kind of what you have to do these days. If you put anything out, there's got to be a visual with it in order for it to attract attention. Because um, almost nobody is walking around without a cell phone in their pocket, which is essentially a movie theater. I mean, you can put Netflix on your cell phone and, you know, see widescreen movies while you're sitting on a bus. It's uh, it's crazy. And I think the symphony orchestra has been having the same problem, whereas for people to come to hear a Strauss tone poem 100 years ago, they could close their eyes and imagine what Strauss was trying to imply by what he was writing. Now people are like, look, I'm going to walk into a hall here. I want a screen <laughs> and a big one. I want to be able to see, you know, what's going on here, even if it's shots of the orchestra members. So, I mean, the screen time is a part of our daily lives. And to tie classical music into that is almost you know, that's the future, I think. I think you've got to be able to match something sonically with something visually. I think you're exactly right. <laughs> it's it's just a the evolution of things. You know, right. like it or not, we're going to have to go along with it or else exactly. it's going to get left in the dust by everything else, you know. But I totally know what you mean about being glad that cell phones weren't prevalent during... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't... <sighs> The last time we went to Columbia, we, <laughs> it was ridiculous. We, so we go to Columbia, we're playing a concert and we walk out on stage and literally, I, I'm, this is not an exaggeration. There were at least two or 300 iPads, like full on iPads up. I was looking at a, a sea of iPads. So I'm like, what is going on? And everybody's recording the concert with their iPads. It was the strangest thing but it's like then it affects the performance you know right. the whole time it's hard to think about music when the whole time you're thinking i wonder where this is going to show up if i clip a note or trip over my foot and 
fall, am I going to be on, you know, America's Funniest Home Videos or, <laughs> you know, who knows what's going to happen I, now. So. It's incredibly stressful. And it's hard to explain that to somebody who's just getting into the music business where we used to be able to walk out on stage. And if, if we had an off night, there were, you know, a couple thousand people there that probably aren't going to talk about it too much. You know, maybe it was reviewed, probably not. We can get in the van and blast out of town and talk about what needs to be better. Right. Uh, these days, yeah, you never know when you're going to be, all of a sudden you're going to end up on Facebook or, and, and you can't predict it. I mean, you have no idea who's got a cell phone out there and who's going to end up posting it on their page and could it go viral? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's fair. It's incredibly stressful. Yeah. It's kind of a microchasm of, of what's going on with everything. Exactly. I mean, you've got people who have probably been, might've been good people their entire life and you catch them on their worst day in a video. And now they're like a, a super villain or something. Lost their job. Yeah. And, and it's crazy. So the same thing happens with musicians. You might have nothing on YouTube except for you fracking some note. It's like, what? <laughs> but well, all right. So tell me a little bit about how you got started playing your instrument. Like what, what got you to gravitate towards the trumpet? Uh, it was a big, uh, I come from a musical family and it said my grandfather played the trumpet on my father's side and um, he was in big bands. In fact, I started on that very trumpet. I still have it. <laughs> it's a hand hammered Oles ambassador. And by hand hammered, I mean, there's, it looks like there's little tiny dents all over the bells. It was very ornate. And my father refinished it because he started on the horn. I started on the horn. So that came from my, my grandfather, which was kind of cool, but he played big band jobs. And he, I mean, he worked for a bank, he sold cars. He did a lot of different things in his life, but it was, you gotta remember that's a Harry James era, a big band era. Um, Benny Goodman was incredibly popular and they didn't have TVs, they had radios. So music was very, very different back then. That trumpet was handed to my father who became a trumpet player also and majored in music. And uh, then it was passed down to me and I had a trumpet in my hand since I was three or four years old. And I was, I have pictures of myself walking around the house with this trumpet. Uh, but I really decided to do it for a living when I was about 14 or 15, when I thought this would be really cool to do. And it was even a little beyond that in that if I didn't do this, I was going to die. <laughs> it was really something I needed to do. Wow. And I tell that to uh, every once in a while, I'll have a student and his parents or her parents will ask me, you know, we're not musicians. We don't know where this comes from. I know uh, my kid is really into the trumpet. What's this like? What's, is this a safe thing to do, the music business? I mean, this is all he or she talks about. And I'll say, uh, your kid really doesn't choose music. Music chooses your kid. And I think you can probably relate to this, that something happens and you decide this is what I got to do. I have to see it through. Even if it doesn't work, there's something inside me that needs to see this to, to its end. Right. And that kind of, uh, you know, took me, I caught fire and that's all I wanted to do was play in an orchestra. 
and I listened to orchestral music and wanted to be a trumpet player. That was it. Did it come somewhat naturally to you, the the playing part? <clears throat> some things did. Yeah, some things. I mean, I had a sound in my head that I wanted to achieve. And uh, I tried to imitate Maurice Andre and Jerry Schwartz and Gil Johnson and all my heroes at the time, Bud Herseth. And that was kind of the way it started. But the the main thing was to drive that my even my father, who was my high school band director and my music teacher and a freelance trumpet player would, you know, hear me practicing in the basement for hours on end at the age of 14 or 15 and think this was maybe not right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, Maybe my kid was a little unbalanced and I need to take him to a shrink. Uh, but it was, you know, I was different from him in that regard that I really was, determined to do this and I needed to to find the sound in my head I needed to achieve the things that I could hear in my head and so I kept at it and kept at it and kept at it until that happened and that's really what you need yeah. uh, you you need that drive as you know it, you need kind of that dedication and obsession for lack of a better word with becoming a musician in order to you know to get there yeah, I, I'm assuming you had a big album collection. Actually, it was a very selective album collection. Uh, I liked certain players, and I would collect those players. Uh, it started with Maurice Andre. I liked Al Hurt. I thought Al Hurt was great. He's one of my favorites, man. Java was like, when I was a really little kid, Java was like, man, that's really awesome. That went to like the, you know, number one in the hit parade. What was cool about Java was that, yeah, it was kind of like one of those, like a little bit of a hokey. Right. It was like you could hear the soul of Al Hurt still in it. You know what I mean? Even though it was kind of like a poppy. Yeah. So so did I. And I had a very selective album collection that I just obsessed over. Gerard Schwartz was one of my favorites. I mean, when I heard him, I just heard something in his in his playing and his approach to the pieces that uh, really turned me on. I thought that was, you know, uh, it, it really struck a chord in me, and I tried to move in that direction. I like Gil Johnson also, but so it, it wasn't it wasn't vast, but it was more what I was after, and uh, and I kind of really focused where I wanted to go with my sound and my approach to the instrument. And I think that helped rather than hearing, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic do Wagner, which was just a crazy awesome, as I found out when I got to college. But it was more like when I was in high school, you know, I was just focused on this one thing that I wanted to do, achieve sound wise. And if I could get there, I thought that would that was my goal. That would be great. And I could take off from there and, and branch out from there. So uh, but it just kind of. Uh, like a, it was the obsession. It was a drive to be a professional musician, to be a professional trumpet player. So did you know where you wanted to go for college? Sort of. I studied with uh, Seymour Rosenfeld, who was the um, second trumpet in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And it, it, everyone has that famous brass album with Cleveland, Philly, and Chicago of the, of the Gabrielli. Right you know, won a Grammy. And when I was a kid, that was the album to listen to. And I could really hear the difference 
there was a real difference between the groups. And I loved the Philly sound. I, I thought, you know, there were a lot of exciting things about the album, but I gravitated towards that Philly sound. And my father called Seymour Rosenfeld, who was teaching at Temple, and we lived very close to Philly. And I remember that phone call that he made and he came in and he, he had the album in his hand and he said, you see this guy, you're going to be studying with him next week. <laughs> I was like, what? what? So, and then I drove down to his house. I don't live far from his house, his old house. Ironically, it was, it's, it's really terrific to, to see that. Cause I used to come down to his house when I was in high school and, and take lessons with this guy who I revered, I thought was, you know, was a rock star to me. Yeah. And uh, so I wanted to go to Temple where he taught because it was a really good match. I didn't need a lot of work, physical work as a kid. I needed literature. I needed to the tricks of the trade. And I needed to study with a guy uh, who had all, you know, the keys to where I wanted to go. And I wanted to be in an orchestra. I wanted to be in the Philly orchestra, but I wanted to be in an orchestra somewhere that's where I wanted to go, orchestral playing. My whole family is, you know, entrenched in jazz. My uncle was a trombone player for the Stan Kenton Band and still does arranging, terrific arranger and writer and composer. Bob Kerno is his name. And my father was a big jazz player and, and we had a lot of jazz albums, but I wanted to be classical. And uh, that left my dad scratching his head a little bit, but uh, he thought, okay, well, let's let's do that. But it seems to me that you've had ever since your childhood and, and your upbringing and all your playing when you were younger, you've had a real passion and, and tie to Philly. So now it's kind of come full circle that that's where you've landed. That's, and that's crazy. That's really crazy because, as you know, we can't decide where we want to live as musicians. It's kind of one of these things where you end up going where the jobs are. I went to Dallas. I went to you know, the Berkshires when I joined the EBQ mm-hmm. and I lived there and uh, the opening happened in Philly. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. Associate principal in Philly, I'll, I'll audition there. And I, you never know whether you're going to get the job or not. Yeah. That was a whole weird story too. I mean, getting to, to Philly was kind of bizarre, but all of a sudden it kind of happened and I'm moving here. And then even greater as lightning struck twice and my wife ended up getting a job in the orchestra. So we're very lucky. I feel very lucky. And uh, to be back here, to be teaching at Curtis, to be teaching at Temple, to be in an orchestra. And when I first joined, all the guys that I remember from Michael Bookspan to, uh, you know, Billy DiPasquale and the members of the horn section and the brass section, I was like, wow, I remember looking at you guys when I was in the audience as a student at Temple. It's really, it was really a dream come true. So yeah, um, very lucky. Uh, That's amazing. So if your entire youth, you were ramping up and gearing up for an orchestral career, how did you end up in a brass quintet for so long? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, because I never, you know, uh, I got to confess something. I didn't really listen to the Empire Brass that much. I knew of them and I knew they were great. Mm-hmm. And I knew they won the Naumburg competition and uh, they may have been the first brass group to ever do that. But the big group that was the influence on me was the Canadians when that uh, Bach album came out uh-huh. and everybody just, it, it reinvented 
how we viewed the brass quintet from the New York brass quintet to this. This was like, oh my God, Dakota and Fugue in D minor for brass quintet. That's insane. And I remember uh, programming that on my senior recital when I was graduating from Temple, that very tune, because I wanted to play that. I wanted to, to, to figure out how they were doing that and how they arranged all those things. But the main thing for me was I got to be in an orchestra. And I went to Wichita State after that for one year to do uh, graduate studies because I could play in the Wichita Symphony Orchestra's second trumpet. Mm. That was a big plus for me. But I missed home a little bit and was feeling like I was losing connections. And the grad program, you know, getting a graduate degree turned out not to be my thing. <laughs> so I was kind of not doing really well in the courses. And I was sitting in a practice room all day just trying to figure out how to play the trumpet better. And so I left and came back to the East Coast and joined the, the New Haven Symphony. I was lucky to land and play an audition there which wasn't a big job, but it was a job where I could support myself, pay the rent. And I was working in New York city also right. with New York, New York trumpet ensemble doing some work there. Right. Right. And then I, I did a festival in Harkness park, which is, was in Connecticut and the empire brass showed up and they were looking for a second trumpet player. And uh, Rolf came up to me and said, would you be interested in doing this? And I'd never even considered it, but I thought, well, what am I going to turn down the Empire Brass Quintet? I'll audition. What the heck? I'll do it. And so I auditioned for the group and it worked out. But it was nothing that I thought I would do. But I really took to it. I really liked it. I liked being in uh, just one of five members on stage and being in front, not being all the way in the back mm -hmm. next to the trombones and the percussion. And uh, it was exciting. It was like kind of like being in the Beatles. <laughs> You know? yeah. yeah, I joined at a good time because they were taking off. They just joined Telarc and it was a lot of fun. So what do you think it was in you or your playing or both that Rolf and the group saw in you that wanted them to bring you into the group? That's a good question. I don't know. I think it's a, it's, I mean, as you know, it's a very particular thing because it's one thing to hire somebody in an orchestra. It's another thing in a small group, like a brass quintet. Right. Because you're living with these people, you know, you're traveling with them, you're in, in a van with them for hours at a time in an airplane, and you're working with them in a very small setting. And you have to be able to get along. And there's a lot of personality involved with that. And there's two trumpets in a brass quintet. And that can lead to some fireworks, especially with a guy like Rolf, <laughs> who is, you know, uh, pretty well known for, you know, his ego. And I didn't really care about that. That wasn't a concern of mine to be first trumpet in the brass quintet. What I wanted to be was part of this group because of the other members also was, was Sam Palafian, Marty Hackelman, Scott Hartman. They were all really incredibly talented technicians and musicians. And I wanted to see if I could keep up with that. Uh, you know, Rolf used to say, if you want to, run with the big dogs, you got to get off the porch. <laughs> you know? And that was the kind of thing where I wanted to get off the porch and, and see if I could do this. It was more about keeping, keeping up. And I was a good personality for that because I just wanted to bridge the gap between Rolf, who I had a great deal of respect for, 
who was an amazing trumpet player, an incredible talent. I wanted to bridge the gap between he and the French horn and the trombone and the tuba and be able to work in that setting. And so I think personality-wise and playing-wise, I didn't have a really domineering sound or I didn't want to be, you know, uh, top dog. I just kind of wanted to make the group work. And that's what made it work great. Yeah. Well, in all the recordings and all the times that I heard you guys, uh, the blend between the two trumpets was always so good. And I know what you're talking about from experience working with people and and from just hearing other groups, uh, how important it is for (laughs) – you can't have like two alphas on the – right it's just not going to turn out well with the personality kind of uh, yin and yang going on. Uh, I'm sure that that is what really, really helped also, but I mean, exactly. I mean, I mean, he, I was known as in a joking way as the other trumpet <laughs> who, you know, and it was, it was crazy, but in some ways I understood at the time that that's the way this, the only way this would work. And I loved what the group was doing on a whole. I loved the CDs. I loved the concept. And I I knew my place in the band. And I knew that it was always in the back of my mind, hey, if you want to start your own brass quintet, leave and start your own brass quintet from the ground up. Mm-hmm. That's tough to do. Or accept where you are here, accept what your job is. And it was not an easy job to be able to blend with Rolf, play with him, make sure that I'm understanding how he's phrasing, how he's tonguing. And that was a whole process, learning how he warmed up and imitating how he warmed up to be able to play like him and also to be able to play like Eric or Marty or, you know, Scott or Doug Wright was in there, a trombone player for a time or Sam learning how to bridge that gap. That was tricky. Yeah. And when you're in a group that's, like you said, only five people on stage, it gets so intimate that you actually, I mean, I'm sure it was this way for you guys. I I know it's this way for us that even day to day, if we start playing a show and I hear something in somebody's sound, I know that he might play it this way today. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, because brass players, it's never, it never feels great all the time. But what you're talking about is a really interesting thing because that's chamber music and there's so few chamber music brass players out there, brass brass groups. And you and I have that in common in that we're with working uh, brass groups that, you know, have a serious schedule. I mean, and you got to record things, you got to go on tour, you got to get the concerts going. And that's something that's hard to explain. I think you would agree to anyone else, even when I'm sitting here in the orchestra, to explain what it's like to travel and be connected, have that radar with other players, where you know from day to day, like you said, oh, this is going to be this way today, and I've got to adjust in order to make it work, in order for the sound to come off stage. That is so rare, and 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 I'm so lucky, and I, I imagine you would feel the same way to experience that you can't teach that. Exactly. It's really hard when you're coaching a chamber ensemble, say like at a university or conservatory, and you're telling them, you know, you guys are going to play this, but it's not going to be the same every time you play. And and the worst, right. for me, the worst situation to ever be in is when I'm sitting in with a, a group 
and they start counting the millimeters on the page to where the crescendo starts and this and that. It's like you, the crescendo starts when you start feeling it with the rest right. of the group. You know, it's like the fish in the sea or the birds in the sky. You're moving with them simpatico and you're making music. It's not making music if you're, you know, well, this crescendo started uh, this. Sam Playfian used to call it the radar. You're not on my radar, he'd say, or you got to get in the radar. You got to, you got to, you got to feel it. And he would say, your ears have to get bigger. And that's the one thing I learned from him and that the more you can hear, the better musician you're going to be. It's not so much about playing. It's about hearing. Can I hear that that's out of tune? Can I hear how that phrase is moving? Can I hear where the direction is going at this point that we're going to slow this down a little bit more? That's so hard to teach, but it's all about the ears. And you, I don't think you get that in an orchestra, ironically. I think you get that in a small ensemble and in chamber music and being responsible for that. Yeah. It, well, it seems that in an orchestra, maybe there are times that you want to do that and you're prohibited. Also. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like right, somebody else has other ideas and they trump you at the moment. Exactly. And and it's, it's a big ensemble and you got your main thing is I got to keep it together with the strings. I'm a half a mile from them, you know, and a lot of times you're just dealing with sonic acoustical problems where, you know, it's got to be together. And then on top, once you can get it together, if you're in a good acoustic space with a hundred people on stage, now we can talk about how we're going to move this musically. And of course, you got to watch the conductor for that. But sometimes you'll be with the conductor and you feel like you're a mile away from the timpani who's across the stage, you know, for some reason, the brass and the percussion are miles apart. That in itself is, you know, is a crazy feat. Yeah. Uh, chamber music is such a special thing. And you, how long were you in Empire Brass? I was in Empire for eight years and I felt uh, things were changing with the band. It was always kind of a, you know, a, a kind of a fluid situation with members coming in and out. Uh, when Sam left, it was a big deal. And, uh, and I felt as though I'd had enough of the road and, and you know, enough of, you know, the chamber music thing. And I wanted to kind of settle down and not be traveling so much, have a family. And, and it was, you know, it was tough, but that's it, the road is a hard, it's a hard lifestyle and you're leaving for sometimes a month at a time and packing your bags and then coming back. And uh, so I, at, at the end of eight years, I felt that was good. It was time for a change. So I left. Well, especially in that era when you were touring, it was much different than now. I mean, you weren't able oh. to like, FaceTime your family every night. Right. And that there were no thing. cell phones. I, I wasn't able to call. And, you know, anyone for that matter, you were kind of relying on, on hotel phones and pay phones. And uh, it's a little easier now, but it's still, but flying was a lot easier. I remember just walking on an airplane. You know, you put your bags through a metal detector and that was basically it. And it was so much easier. And then when 9-11 happened, flying became a nightmare and uh, yeah, and travel became nuts. And I'm kind of glad I wasn't around at that point in time travel wise. But uh, but yeah, it was it was time. It was time for me to go. 
So when when you left, is that when you won the the Dallas job? Or? Yeah, I was in the middle of a recording session with uh, my last CD. I did with it with the group, and uh, Dave Bilger called me from Dallas and said, "Look, we haven't hired a principal trumpet player yet. Would you be interested in coming and doing a year position?" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely." I mean, I I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I actually I was going to just find a gig doing something. I, I was going to try to teach or I was in the, I would wait tables. I don't know. I just needed to, to do something different. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, it was once again, really lucky. I went out there and auditioned and they said, okay, yeah, we'll give you a year position. And then I re-auditioned for the job after a year and won the position officially. Awesome. And how long were you there? Six years. Did you like Dallas? I did. It was a very good orchestra. And Andrew Litton was, a, you know, this young dynamic conductor who was, things were just starting to take off. He had a good recording contract going for the Dallas Symphony. And the, the orchestra just seemed to be roaring. I kind of jumped on that bandwagon at a very good time. Uh, it was different for me uh, to be sitting in an orchestra. And it was a little strange being in the back of, of the stage and just from a playing standpoint, I had to readjust things, but, but it was, it, it, you know, it was a job and a good one, a very good one. And I really enjoyed playing with the people down there. And, Did you have uh, to change equipment? I mean, just for that different playing. I mean, it's got a much different style of, of playing. Yeah. When I joined uh, empire, Rolf was playing on a three C and I wanted to get that sound. I was playing on a one and a half or one C so I, I switched to a 3C, which gave me a little more endurance, but it also just gave me this, uh, this width of sound. It was a different, very different mouthpiece, trumpet mouthpiece. And so I could blend with him much better and uh, keep up with the demands of the, of the job. And then when I was thinking of leaving, I switched to a 1C, which was a kind of a drag <laughs> playing a quintet job on a 1C. But it was good because when I took the audition for Dallas, I had a little bit more of an orchestral sound. And as I played in the group, that was their main concern. They said, well, you know, you still kind of sound a little quintetti. And I had an empire flair to what I was doing, which, you know, didn't really work on Bruckner. <laughs> so, Do you think that they really would have noticed that sound different though, if they didn't know that you were an empire? Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think so. I think it was, you know, cause I, I been, in auditions before I auditioned for Philly uh, when I was with empire, when they hired Dave and, uh, and I was able to talk to Roger Blackburn after my audition. And he said, you know, it just didn't sound like you've been playing with an orchestra. You had this kind of thing in your sound that uh, didn't sound orchestral. And it was the, the, the Empire Brass had a very specific way of, of vibrato and it had a very specific way of tonguing things. And I took to that and everything I did kind of sounded like that. And it was hard to separate that when I was working on excerpts while I was a member of the ensemble. So I, I took a Met audition, which I came very close to winning for the, for the Met Orchestra that they, you know, it was the same thing. It was like, well, you're, you're kind of, it's weird. It doesn't sound like what we're used to. So I, I think with Dallas, they were kind of in a spot. They hadn't hired anybody. They needed someone who was capable of 
you know, filling the chair. And that was their main concern. They weren't going to hand me the job. They kind of said, well, let's see how he does for, for a year. And I, I do think that was there. That kind of playing was there. And then as I played in the chair and I was listening to what was going on around me, I suddenly realized, okay, yeah, I got to change some things. It just kind of happened when you're sitting there. I, I understood what they were talking about from a standpoint of, yeah, you don't want to use vibrato here. You don't want to sound like, you know, you're playing West Side Story when you're <laughs> supposed to be doing Mahler. It's like, you know, okay. And it slowly came about that I changed style and was able to figure out how to be an orchestral trumpet player again. Yeah. Was it a change for you um, to go from, I mean, when you're playing in a, in a group like Empire, you're constantly playing. Right. There, there is no downtime during the show. You're just playing and playing and playing. And then you go in an orchestra and there's, there's a lot of downtime, you know, I mean, there's yeah. great parts and, and stuff, but I mean, comparatively, it's like, was that a hard adjustment or was it welcome or? or yeah, it's a physical thing. Cause when, when we're playing with the empire brass, the rule was you never take 12 hours off the horn. You keep what Rolf would call the dent in your lip <laughs> and that, you know, it's, 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 you got to have a certain kind of shape to be playing two hours of straight brass music and you get in that shape and then you suddenly realize you kind of need to have the horn on your chops a lot. And with the orchestra, the, one of the first concerts that I played with Dallas was Symphony Fantastique. <laughs> and there's 20 minutes in that piece that you don't play at all. And not only was it weird sitting on stage and not doing anything, I actually got claustrophobic. I started feeling like very weird that I, I needed to get off stage. It was very, I was having like this panic thing where I've got to be here for 20 minutes. And I'm not going to do anything. And then physically my, my lips started swelling up because the mouthpiece wasn't on it. So the guys in the section were looking at me. I had <laughs> the only way I could, remedy this was to have my mouthpiece and I was pushing it into my lip while, you know, the other movements were playing. I had my head down and that kind of got me to the march to the scaffold where I could just like play. But it was, you know, uh, Doug Wright, who's a terrific trombone player, is in the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra and he played with the Empire for a while. He said, it's the difference between sprinting and long distance running. And when you're in an orchestra, you're kind of sprinting. You have these things you got to do very loud and very accurate. And you've got to have a presence. And then you sit and wait <laughs> for long periods of time. And that's a condition that you have to have your lip in. And mine wasn't quite in that shape when I first joined the group. But uh, I learned how to do that. You learn how to condition your lips so you can take long periods of time off during a piece or a a concert and be able to come in and play again. Yeah, man, <laughs> I can, I can sympathize with that. Well, you've done that. You've done the orchestral thing and the brass, you know, and it's a different ball game. It's so different. Yeah. The, the anxiety is real. Like I, <laughs> right. I seriously, if I'm playing something and I'm just sitting there for a long time, I start to like ramp myself up nervous wise because I haven't right. been playing. I feel like I need to have like a mute next to me or something so I could play a little and then play. So yeah, it's, I mean, it, but it's a mindset. It's, it's like insane, but you have to feel comfortable with that physically first. And if you're playing all the time, 
then you really don't feel comfortable sitting there and not playing and then picking up and playing. And you're kind of out of the game. And it's, it's, it's a completely a psychological thing. It's different. Right. Yeah, man. So you were in uh, Dallas for, you said, six years? Sir? Yeah. All right. So when you went to Philadelphia Orchestra, I mean, you were principal in Dallas, and now you're associate principal in Philadelphia. For those who don't know, uh, what is the difference between the two there in the job description? Well, um, my wife and I met in Dallas, and uh, her, we're, both our families were back on the East Coast. And we were kind of wanting to get back here in a lot of ways. And I'd taken a couple auditions and um, Dallas was great. and It was fun, but we felt kind of, you know, far away from home. And so uh, we thought we'd give it a try because, you know, you can only audition for so long. And uh, I was getting up there. And so I thought, okay, uh, we'll give this a shot. And I auditioned for the Met and Philly. And I got very close to the Met and uh, that was very disappointing. And, and I decided I'm done. I'm going to stay in Dallas and that'll be it. And I put in for the associate principal at the same time that I put in for the Met audition. And I just, I was kind of auditioned out and I just decided that, you know, there was a, there was a time, it's hard to explain to students that you have like a frame of time, a window of time that you can audition. I was 40 and, uh, I, I was auditioning with people I had taught. <laughs> right. So, you know, and so it was, it was like, wow, okay. You don't want to, you know, it, it, there's just a weirdness to it. And I thought, oh, okay, it's over. And then Dave called me and said, we didn't hire anybody. And would you like to come out? <laughs> it was the same call I got from him in Dallas. Would you reconsider auditioning? So I said, okay because we're friends and I knew he really wanted to, he wanted me to, to come out and audition. So I did. And it went very well. Uh, I was one of a group of about five guys they invited and I hadn't, hadn't even thought of it. And uh, I came back to Dallas and Dave called me and said, if you want the job, it's yours. And I was scratching my head thinking, wow, is this something I want to do? Do I want to jump out of this and it, it just it was weird all of a sudden I was I was in the process of thinking differently about my life and then all of a sudden this happens and so I decided to do it I love the Philly Orchestra right. I of course and it was it was literally coming home and Dave and I had worked together in, in the New York trumpet ensemble and in freelance situations in New York so I thought that would be a lot of fun too and also I wanted to do other things mm-hmm. I wasn't so attached to the principal chair. That's a whole mindset in itself. And I, you know, I, I like the cartooning thing and I wanted to explore getting in a chamber ensemble together. I missed that. I missed being in the empire brass. I thought maybe I could get a brass quintet and do something on the side or a trumpet ensemble or something also, and play with, a, you know, occasionally play principal trumpet with a Philly, Philly orchestra. That would be fun. Yeah. So, so I left and, and joined. Yeah. At a certain point, it's got to be, you know, you've been principal trumpet, you've done the solo thing also, you've done all the high pressure things. It's like, yes, I would love to play at a very high level still and have a great job 
not taking away from the difficulty of uh, any of the other positions in the orchestra, brass or trumpet wise. But when you're principal, it's a different ballgame. You, when things are coming up, it's like you're constantly preparing. You're constantly in the hot seat, and it's got to be kind of a, a nice feeling to be in a position to where you can have time for your other loves also, and you don't have to constantly be in the hot seat. You're exactly right. And it, I mean, the, the, the principal trumpet chair comes with a certain physical conditioning as well as mental conditioning. You have to kind of be a personality that wants to, wants to do that. And I did, I did it. And I recorded a lot of things with Dallas, a lot of Copeland and uh, Mahler. We did, we did a lot of Mahler, did Mahler three and Mahler, uh, two and four and I can't remember six. I mean, it was, there was, there was a lot of recording and I felt like I'd done a a lot of it (laughs) and I wasn't so into that thing anymore. I wasn't into making my stamp on, you know, the principal trumpet world. I was, I don't know. I, I didn't, I don't know if I had the personality for it. And in coming here, I get to play, in the section, I get to play principal. I sometimes will move up and play second. Uh, you know, I'll play the offstage stuff. It's more fun for me. It's more fun to be to be in the ensemble, like I was with the Empire. It was that was, I, you know, I didn't necessarily want to play first in Empire. Rolf kind of did that, and when I did, yeah, it was fun, but it wasn't Rolf. And you know, I kind of liked where I was, my position. So. You know, I get to do the principal thing, and uh, I also get to play in the section, and I get to have time, you're right, away from the stress, not have to worry about going to Carnegie Hall with Mahler 5 or something like that. And and that, to me, that's that kind of suits me a little better. Yeah, I always think of, of a buddy of mine, Chuck Lazarus. We played in Dallas Brass a little together. Right, right. And... Um, his fourth trumpet in Minneapolis. And I remember asking, we were on a, like a tour in, in Alaska. He came and subbed and I was like, Hey man, I was like, so are you thinking about taking any auditions, you know, playing principal somewhere? Or he's like, no, nah, man, are you kidding me? He's like, I love being fourth trumpet. Right. Like, I don't, I don't play like half the time and I can go off and do my own. Cause he's a guy about the town, you know, yeah. to, to play in all of his different stuff. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and every job has its difficulties. I mean, if you're principal, you've got to play the solos. You've got to be on all the time. You've got to uh, have the physical strength to be able to ride out over top of the symphony orchestra. As you get older, that gets harder. If you're second trumpet, you've got to be able to play really high and really low and do it well. You also have to play, you play all the time. You're in the chair constantly. You have to have the chops for that. And you've got to be really good at blending with the first trumpet. If you're associate, you've got to be able to play third, but then jump into the principal chair when it's time. (laughs) And that is, you know, you've got to prepare yourself. You've got to know what it's like to play principal, which is something I was able to bring to the Philly Orchestra because I'd been there. I played the concertos. I played principal and I knew what it took to do that. So for me to jump into the principal chair was, okay, I've been there, done that. A lot of people 
who haven't done that, that's tricky to make that transition between third and first. And if you're fourth trumpet, you've got to be able, and sometimes it's utility, you've got to be able to do it all. So it's all difficult, but that first, that principal trumpet chair is, you know, you got to have a really thick skin. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And a strong pair of chops. Yeah. And you have to have the bravado going on. Right. Like, right. You know, growing up in Vegas and playing on all the shows uh, on the strip and stuff, I had this buddy who's a trumpet player who passed away not too long ago. Uh, his name was Tom Snelson. And he played with everybody, Elvis and all these guys. And and he was a lead trumpet player. But by you know the early 2000s, he would show up early to all the gigs and he'd go and he'd sit on the fourth chair. <laughs> He's like... I'm going to show up early. He's like, I'm going to sit in the fourth chair, man. They're now making me play lead. With <laughs> Why do I want to play that? Let the young guys do that shit. Right. It's harder as you get older. It's very, it's, it's physically, I'm, I've just turned 60 and I'm feeling it. I mean, I, I can't play as long as I used to. I can't do the things I used to do. Uh, the recovery time is different. I have to approach playing differently. You have to, as a brass player, no one told me that you have to kind of reinvent your playing. At least I do. And a lot of the players I know do. As you get older, you've got to breathe differently. You've got to uh, learn how to be more efficient uh, rather than all the stuff you can get away with. When when I was with the Empire Brass, it was just, it was no big deal. If my chops felt bad, I knew the next day I would wake up and it'd be okay. Right. Now, if your chops feel bad, it's like, well, hmm. Better get out the Advil and the ice pack, and you know it's going to be a long, slow warm up. But it's it's that's life. That's you know, the way life is. Yeah. Are there certain things that you've learned throughout your career that help with uh, playing efficiently and maybe uh, just increasing the longevity of your career? Being flexible, being creative in the way you approach the instrument, and uh, being able to change course, to reinvent your playing is, I think, incredibly important uh, because I see players who kind of, they know how to do it and they figured out how to do it when they're in their 20s and their 30s. And then when things change, because literally, physically, uh, your jaw changes, your face changes, your skull changes as you get older, mm -hmm. your teeth move. There's a lot of things that, that are all of a sudden moving around and you're kind of having to work with that as you get older. You're a human being. And uh, those things happen everywhere, whether it's your knees or your hips or your ankles or your you know arthritis here and there or whatever. There are aches and pains and things that happen. You have to learn to move with that. And if you can do that, I've reinvented my playing a lot over the years, be it switching from being a, a, you know, a quintet player to an orchestra player to just getting older and learning that, okay, this doesn't work anymore. I can't warm up like this anymore. I can't do this anymore. As much as I try, I've got to do it another way. And like I said, I've taken a look at the way I breathe. I take, you know, doing other things that are going to help make me sound like I'm in my thirties or my forties. Uh, but it can't be the same. You aren't the same. As you age, you aren't the same. Your body changes and you have to be able to do that. And, and everyone's different. Everyone has to figure it out on their own. 
at the places that you teach, I'm sure, you know, being Curtis and stuff, I mean, you've got excellent, excellent students. What are some of the prominent things that you see that you wish students would maybe do a little bit different? I mean, the players now, there are some students that amaze me, uh, the things that they can do now that, and it's always been that way through history. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was in my twenties, when I went to college, no one had a piccolo trumpet. If someone had a piccolo trumpet, it was passed around the college. (laughs) It's like, can I borrow your piccolo trumpet? Because nobody was, you know, and now everyone has a piccolo trumpet and everyone knows how to do that, you know. Uh, years ago, when the Philly Orchestra played Mahler Five, this was in the '60s, late '50s or the early '60s, when Mahler Five hit the Philly Orchestra. If you can believe that, and Gil Johnson looked at this and said, "Who the heck starts a symphony on the you know in C sharp? That's crazy. I'm going to play this on a D trumpet." They were looking at it for the first time and trying to figure out the right of spring. It was the same thing. Now, you know. Right. Every, you know, there are colleges that do the right of spring, everybody. So there's amazing players out there. Uh, and they can do things that that were crazy when I was growing up. I mean, wow, that's that's interesting that, you know, now the big deal is to be able to play the Tomasi concerto for trumpet. When when I was a kid, the Tomasi was new. It's like, whoa, my goodness, you know, play the Tomasi concerto. That's uh, it was always the Haydn and the Hummel. Mm-hmm. But what I would tell them <laughs> is that you have to think about the business a little differently in that uh, the landscape is changing. Where you are and what you're doing and the type of musician you are, you've played everything. You, you play in all settings. You know how to do everything. The jack of all trades, I think, is the musician of the future. And you are, what you do is kind of the way things are going to go, I think. You're going to have to do a little bit of everything, be it jazz, be it chamber music work, be it ballet, orchestra, whatever, playing club dates. It's kind of going that way in a sense that, you know, especially with this pandemic, you're looking at what is the symphony orchestra now? How do we restart? How do we come back and start doing this again? And what are we going to do differently when I started with the Philadelphia Orchestra, it was nothing but classical music. Nothing but classical music. We never played pops, ever. This was in 2000. Uh, since then, we've gone from playing, you know, the theme from YMCA <laughs> and, you know, those kind of pop shows to movies. Now we're playing uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all this, the, the Star Wars trilogy and beyond you know, the Godfather movies. I mean, that's the kind of thing we're doing. We're doing more chamber music. We're reaching out in the communities. We're having to play with dancers. We're having to play with pop artists. We're having to play with, you know, James Taylor. And uh, when I was in Dallas, we played with Lou Rawls. And there were there were charts, you know, Nancy Wilson came to work at, you know, with the orchestra. And I had all of a sudden, I was looking at those charts, Stevie Wonder. So it's, that's the kind of musician you got to be. That's why I'm kind of glad I was attached to the Empire Brass for a long time because that expanded my brain and you can't, that doesn't go back. And I think you probably feel the same way. You've played everything. You've gone from the pit 
to on stage in front of orchestras, to on stage by yourself, to you know orchestras playing Mahler and Strauss, and and I would tell students that that you kind of have to know a lot more than I did when I was auditioning for symphony orchestras as a twenty-year-old. Yeah, I just knew excerpts, and I could you could do that. There was enough work out there where you could you could make a living doing just that. Now it's a little different. Yeah. There is so much information available now. It's like players are getting better at a younger age because they have they see so much that's available to them now. It's like you can go onto YouTube, type in Trumpet Awesome, and you're going to see some of the best stuff you've ever seen yeah. at, at your fingertips. And it's the same thing with sports. I mean, we see these, we see young kids who are 13, 14, and they're doing insane stuff that would have put NBA players in the 60s to shame. But it's because human beings are great mimickers. And that's the way it's always been. I mean, uh, for someone running a mile to break, to break a four minute mile was a gigantic thing. Right. And now you got guys like Bolt that are going way beyond that. You're, you're just like, uh, oh my God, what, what is, you know, that's how far can we go as humans? Well, who knows? In a hundred years, a human may be able to run a two and a half minute mile. Right. You know? Alongside with that, the playing field is super level now. I mean, even if you don't get to go to a place like Curtis or you don't get to go to a place like Juilliard uh, or wherever it is that you might think is the, the the top place to be, really, there are opportunities for you everywhere with, with these. I mean, you could take a master class with the principal horn in LA Phil or whatever over a Zoom thing. And, it, and a lot of times it's free. You know? Exactly. Yeah, it's hard to explain that because when I was a kid, I studied in Philly because Philly was close to my house. But I wouldn't think of going to New York or Chicago to study with those guys or L.A. You just did. You know, you were regional. It was all regional. You had no idea what's happening in Chicago. You know, you, you'd get the an album from the Chicago Symphony, but even radio broadcasts, you weren't really hearing any of that stuff or seeing that. And now it's worldwide. You know, you got Matthias Hoff and the German Brass. So, oh my God, look at that! You got Minozel. Look at that group. They're all different. They're just it's it's an amazing, uh, you know, mix of culture and uh, and talent. Yep, and it's all a fingertips length right. away. Yep, yeah, you're just scrolling through it. Yeah, yeah. This has been a great talk, man. I mean, before you go. I got to ask if there are any particular stories, maybe in an orchestra or whatever, that people would enjoy hearing, man, especially maybe road stuff, because on the oh, road- a lot of them I can't repeat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it, it's just funny stuff. Sometimes it's tragic. Sometimes it's hilarious. Sometimes, I mean, it's, it, it, it really is a reality TV show and it, it changes from day to day. But, there's one story that sticks out in my mind about Rolf because Rolf was a personality that was difficult for everyone to get along with. I mean, he was very driven, a a terrific talent, an unbelievably talented musician and a very skilled trumpet player. And I knew that when I joined the band, but he was difficult to work with. He had his ideas about the way he wanted to do things. He had a, 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 you know, an enormous ego and part of that made him, who he was. And a lot of that was dumped into how he played the trumpet. So you don't want to change that. He was the fire behind the band. He picked out, 
the things he wanted to do. And when I left the group, he was working on the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be able to play that. And he'd start, you know, uh, with four measures, and then he'd keep going from there and keep going from there. And I, I was able to, I was fortunate enough to live with him, sort of, and able to watch how he managed his life and also how he managed his trumpet playing and accomplished so many things. And we were out in California, we were touring and we landed in Fresno. And at the time, uh, Rolf was a single man. And we got to the airport, we went to the hotel, checked in and Rolf left to pick up his girlfriend at the airport who was flying in from, I think, Florida. And when he came back with his girlfriend, somebody broke into his hotel room and took everything but his toothbrush, everything. Took his trumpets, his clothes, emptied out his room, music, everything was gone. And he was more angry than any, anything, but he, he wasn't going to cancel the show. And he called the presenter and he said, there's got to be trumpet players in the Fresno area. Here's what I need. I needed a G trumpet. I need a C trumpet, a B flat trumpet. I need a tux. And I thought this was going to be a disaster. Because not only did he not have his horns and his mouthpieces, he didn't have any of his music. And that's like pre-PDF. like it's Right, like- exactly. We got to the show that night, and there he is in a borrowed tux with borrowed trumpets, borrowed mouthpieces. And he played the show from memory. And honest to God, he didn't drop a note. And he was so angry <laughs> and so frustrated that he dumped all that into playing and I never heard him play better. I mean, he really killed it on borrowed horns, borrowed mouthpieces. I was making mistakes just listening to him play because I knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was Rolf. And after the show, I went up to him and he lit a cigarette, you know, he's backstage and I said, Rolf, I got to tell you, and I never, we never really had a rapport very much. It was just kind of yucking it up and having a good time. I said, that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. And he just kind of blew it off and said, yeah, another day at the job. <laughs> and just kind of, that was it. But that was the kind of thing that you had to be ready for in the road, that kind of event. And that was what you were facing literally every day. But that story, it will stick with me forever. I mean, that's really what Rolf was capable of and the person that he was. Wow. That's so great to hear because a lot of the stories you hear about Rolf, especially if you're in the quintet world, people like to to rag on the fact that he, he was such a well, a personality. He was hard to get along with and he was an alpha and he was yep. he wasn't exactly cordial to everybody. But the one thing in common that I hear from everybody who did play with him is that he was an incredible musician <laughs> and kind of a one of a kind. Especially you hear him on that G trumpet, man. I mean, it's just like he had this sound that just that just floated and, and his articulation was, was ridiculous. I don't know how. Oh, I tried to do that for eight years, tried to get that. And I couldn't figure out how he was doing it. And, uh, and it was just something I think he, he could always do. Yeah. 
I got to thank you so much for being on. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. I really dig the Boston Brass. I love what you guys are doing. And it was nice to finally sit down and talk with you. And and this has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much, man. I mean, it's I, I admire everything about your career. I really admire uh, the years that you were with the quintet because it was a, a really big part in my upbringing as a young musician. And, uh, and even now, I listen to those recordings and I'm like, holy shit, man. It's, it's some of them <laughs> are my favorite, like the Class Brass and the, uh, what was it, the Broadway album that you guys did? The, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I loved that, man. I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember sitting in my bedroom listening to that for the first time and I, I heard Hello, Dolly, and I heard uh, <laughs> Sam's solo that bump. And I had never heard a tuba player do that before. And and I I would just try to play it by ear on my horn. I'm trying to like do the that's what it is, right? I mean for for all the young kids out there and students and and they sit there and they try to emulate what it is that you are doing at that time. And when we go through life as musicians, we just hope that we can be that for some other young musician coming up later on, you know, but yeah. You are definitely a huge part of that for me. And I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, yeah, man, thanks so much. Well, I'm glad to hear you guys carrying on that tradition. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. All right. I'll catch you later, Jeff. Thanks. All right. Take care, man. Bye. Bye-bye.